Thank you today for listening to the program. This is about the culture of America. A special guest coming up midsection in the program, and his name is Ira Melman. Ira Melman is with the Federation for American Immigration Reform, and you can find that website, F-A-I-R-U-S dot org. That's fairus dot org. And it's a great website. There are many articles. Ira Melman is the media director from that organization. He has articles on there. And the website has, for example, how many illegal border crossings there are even per day. And right now, matter of fact, as, as I started this program, the numbers have changed right in front of my eyes. There are 40, well, there it goes again, 4,330 illegal border crossings just today. And this organization is on top of that issue, shows us how much money Americans are paying, what the cost is culturally, socially, what the cost is to America. So we'll talk with Ira Melman at the bottom of the program about the illegal border crossing and Joe Biden's flagrant disobedience of the law on that. All right. First of all, however, I do want to talk about education. And there are many stories regarding education that uh, shows the direction of education that's happening in America. And I think everybody's probably familiar with it, but here's one that's really fairly new, at least it was in my eyes. And I wanted to think about uh, this particular uh, educational move, and uh, we'll talk about it as we go along here. Now, several years ago, I wrote about juvenile detention Alternative Initiative, J-D-A-I, Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative. It is a program that was put into place in multiple counties across America. The program has as a stated goal the reduction of detention population of juveniles, too many people, juveniles, incarcerated in juvenile detention. But not just all. They're concerned that especially there were more kids of color and ethnic minorities in juvenile detention facilities. But this begins, it begins with the assumption that kids of color, that is, blacks and Hispanics, are locked up at higher rates than Caucasians simply because the system is rigged against them. And this is due, the reason the system is rigged against them, this is due to the fact that there are underlying prejudices among the majority population. So the reason that there are more blacks in the adult system, more blacks in the juvenile system, more Hispanics in the juvenile system than there are white kids is because there is systemic prejudice against those races. And that's the assumption upon which this entire thing, the JDAI program works. It specifically states, for example, that the program is to require states to work to reduce the disproportionate representation of minority juveniles and secured facilities. So whether it be an underlying behavior, such as a broken home or different cultural values, those things have nothing to do with the, the equation of why more minority children are locked up or juveniles are locked up in juvenile detention facilities. They don't even count that as a contributing factor. Now, this is social justice. It has nothing to do with real justice, but focuses upon disparities in society. And it arms the government to equalize the outcome. So here's how social justice works. It comes to it and says, all right, there are more minority children locked up in the JDI, uh, the juvenile detention facilities 
the JDAI program tells us that we've got to get rid of that disparity, so we have to even out the population. And so we're going to equalize the racial quotas in the juvenile detention facilities. And how is it going to be done? How are we going to get that accomplished? We're simply going to refuse to lock up minorities when they have committed crimes, and that is what is called equity. Now, that's what happened, by the way, down in Broward County, Florida, with Nicholas Cruz, who shot up the school. He had been arrested several times, but they could not keep him, or they would not keep him because of this predominant philosophy in this in this particular doctrine. Now, I said I was going to talk about education in schools, so let's talk about what has this to do with schools. Well, let's turn attention to the school system, because that has that template is the perfect illustration of what is taking place in schools. This equity template is being used now in the school grading system. There was an uh, an organization, a, it was a news organization called, it is a news organization called Local Government Information Services, LGIS. And they published a piece in an Illinois paper entitled West Cook News. This is in Cook County, Chicago, which is in uh, Cook County, Illinois, which is in the Chicago area. And it was entitled, OPRF is to implement a race-based grading system in the 2022-2023 school year. OPRF refers to the Oak Park Rivercrest High School system. So they're going to go to a race-based grading system next year. And that would be in the suburb of Chicago. And it states they will require teachers to adjust their classroom grading scales to account for the skin color or ethnicity of its students. Now, you're going to say this is hard to believe that I'm actually hearing this. There's more. Student grades at OPRF have been poor, to say the least. So, quoting from the article, in an effort to equalize test scores among racial groups, OPRF will order its teachers to exclude from their grading assessments variables, it says, that disproportionately hurt the grades of black students. They can no longer be docked, for example, for missing class, for misbehaving in school, for failing to turn in assignments according to the plan. The article goes on to state that advocates for so-called equity-based grading practices, which seek to raise the grade point averages of black students and lower The higher-achieving Asian, white, and Hispanic ones say a new grading criteria is necessary to further school district's mission of DEIJ, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. All right, so there is the basic news story that was put out by LGIS, the Local Government Information Services, in West Cook News. Now, at that point, a number of news organizations... I think this is so interesting. It's pretty fascinating to follow. Watch what happens. A number of news organizations have hurried to label the story, that story regarding the OPRF, race-based grading, as false. For example, Snopes, the Chicago Tribune, Business Insider, AP News, Chicago Business, and others jumped in very quickly, that's just to name a few, that have thrown the penalty flag on the LGIS and saying, these are the people that initially reported it, and it is false information, so they say. Now, just like Facebook fact-checkers, however, these official censors 
demonstrate why fact-checking censorship is a subjective and inaccurate practice. This equals real danger when practiced by gigantic corporations and even the government itself, which is exactly what's going on on YouTube and Facebook. The censors frequently are wrong, and they only represent their only viewpoint, their own, their viewpoint themselves, and that's it. School board members at OPRF discussed just such a plan on May 26th meeting at which Lori Fiorenza, an administrator in the district, provided a slide presentation titled Transformative Education. So, fact-checkers, not so fast. What does transformative education have? And by the way, I have a copy of it. It's on the Internet. You can go find it. The Lori Fiorenza. Transformative education. And what does it include? Listen carefully. Examining equitable grading practices. Equitable. There were, there's that word. Which are to be implemented by the fall of 2023. Teachers are then to integrate equitable assessment and grading practices into all academic and elective courses. And this is to include restorative practices centered on equity. Teachers will utilize the racial equity analysis tool. Now, that's a quote from their paper, from the, the, the slide presentation that Lori Fiorenza gave us, the racial equity analysis tool. What is racial equity analysis tool? Well, that is to consider policies of grading that consider or take into the equation race. Well, there's more to it. i tell you what, when we come back from break, We'll finish this story. We'll talk about it just a little bit more. And then we'll have our special guest from Federation for American Immigration Reform back in a moment. Okay, we're talking about the school system in Cook County, Illinois. And specifically, it is the uh, high schools that are together. OPRF is what's called Oak Park Rivercrest High School System. And the race-based grading system that they have put into place. Now, at one point. Fact checkers came along and said, boy, they all threw the flag on it, said, no, that's not right. But it turns out that the fact checkers are wrong because this is actually indeed going on. So the woman who is making the presentation to this, the school board there is Lori Fiorenza. She did this in May. So this is the statements that I'm reading from her own presentation. Equitable, great, equitable grading practices. And she says, basically, Teachers must utilize the racial equity analysis tool. That is, you consider race, race when you consider grades. So one of Fiorenza's recommended papers, and I thought this was interesting, that educators should read to help us understand what she's about and what this whole program is about, is called Grading for Equity by Joe Feldman. Well, I went to the Internet, and I looked up Joe Feldman and got his Took, took the paper, and grading for equity here is in my hand. Feldman is a part of the Crescendo Education Group out of Oakland, California. And Feldman's paper plainly emphasizes over and over and over again. Matter of fact, this is the basis of the paper. The teachers don't know what they're doing when they grade, put a grade on a paper, because of implicit bias against minorities. So teachers, you might have a BA degree, you might have a master's degree, but you don't know anything about really assessing 
the subject matter that you've been teaching in school because you have implicit bias against minorities. Now, that's the thesis of Feldman's paper. Traditional grading has within, he says, embedded inequities and inaccuracies. It is not an overstatement to say that this assertion is the foundation of his entire thesis. A quote from his paper says, Traditional grading practices are often corrupted by implicit racial, class, and gender biases. That's one subheadline. These implicit biases, it is claimed, have resulted in disproportionately punishing African-American, Latino, low-income, and special education students, and these biases similarly impact aspects of individual teachers' grading. So, two things here. Number one, the minority children are being punished more frequently, and that is because of bias of teachers, not because of misbehavior. Nothing to do with cultural values or lack of values in a minority community. Nothing to do with the fact that three-quarters of the children of minority children, or black children at least, are born into a home without a father. Nothing to do with anything like that. Nothing to do with their behavior at all. It has to do with the fact that they're punished is because of white teachers' bias. That's the underlying assumption. I tell you what, that is something that they want to, they want to continue to push down the line, hoping that no one will object to it. Well, I object. I say absolutely that is false. The misbehavior that is going on with minority students is comes out of the fact that they come from broken homes and they have different cultural values, different cultural value systems. The same thing is the reason why black students in colleges don't get engineering degrees, not because they're incapable. They don't put value upon engineering degrees. The same reason they don't go to pilot training school, the same reason they don't fly pilot uh, fly airplanes in the, in the Air Force because they don't value those those things. That's what's happening. But they tell us, Feldman tells us in his paper, that the reason they have problems with behavior is not because of their behavior. It's because of implicit bias, and that's why they're punished by the white teachers. Now, that's his idea. Number two, he says it also affects the grading. That is, they have disproportionately lower grades than the white students, but that's because of the bias, again, of the teachers. Now, let me just stop here for a moment. Several years ago, studies were done across the country, as they are every year, really, regarding education and the outcomes and the testing outcomes that have taken place. Washington, D.C., has some of the lowest scores always in education. But is it because of white teachers' bias that they have low scores? No. <laughs> no. There are no white teachers there, hardly. It's almost it's 95% black in Washington, D.C. The same thing is the case in Chicago. They have black teachers. They have black administrators. They have a black, a, a black mayor. They have black DA, and yet they're blaming it on white people. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, this is, this is what's happening. People are refusing to take responsibility for their own behavior, and that's what's happening. So it's further asserted by Feldman that what they call soft skills, that is behaviors, attendance, participation, and effort, disregard those things as figuring into a student's grades. In plain English, 
Minority students are a huge behavior problem at OPRF. Their academic achievement lags far behind other students. But rather than holding blacks and Hispanics accountable for their behavior or requiring them to meet academic standards that are required of other students, OPRF will follow Feldman's recommendation to quit assessing poor behavior or factoring it into grades, including attendance to class. How's that going to go? Let's talk about equitable grading for a moment. Mastery of subject content cast aside in favor of simple improvement. Equitable grading is simply meaning this. A student will be rewarded for growth over a period of time. Now, this means exactly what it looks like. That is, a white student who masters this subject will score no higher than a minority student who shows some progress. And this is because they will not consider achievement against an objective scale. The standards are being changed. Feldman writes, Equitable grading practices significantly reduce the disparity between non-white and white students. Well, of course they, it re- reduces the disparity. The sole question now has become, how much progress did the student display? We're not asking whether they master the topic. We're not asking whether they are high achievers in a particular topic or learn it. We're asking, what, simply, did they make some progress? They might be at a fourth grade level in high school, but if they made, a, made some progress, they'll be graded just the same as a person who's operating on a 12th grade level. Now, that is what's taking place as far as equitable grading is concerned. What is happening is we're absolutely losing our minds about how to educate. It's a fad, equity grading, nothing less than racism in another dress. It's racist to begin with. Society is accepting misbehavior and consequent low academic achievement by minority children. And instead of trying to bring them up, we're bending over backwards to accommodate it. We'll be back in just a few moments with Ira Melman. We'll talk about the border. Now, I know that Ira had to go to a meeting, so um, I wanted to go back to the education system for just a moment. And this time we're talking about West Texas. Now, this is a program that's aired out of Texas, and this is a Texas story. And as you probably have heard, you can find it on Fox News. An El Paso teacher's firing over pedophile's comment in the classroom is touching off a firestorm. What happened was the El Paso's Independent School District Board of Trustees said the allegation is being investigated thoroughly. But what has happened is a teacher was informed of her proposed termination after telling students to call pedophiles minor attracted persons. That's according to the school district's uh, school, the city school district. But some witnesses say her remarks were taken out of context. Of course they do. In an 18-second clip shared on TikTok, the Franklin High School teacher identified by the El Paso Teachers Association as Amber Parker can be heard telling students they're not allowed to label individuals as pedophiles. She reportedly made the comment during a lesson on the play called The Crucible. We're not going to call them that, she said in the video. We're going to call them MAP maps, M-A-P-S. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Maps means minor attracted persons. And she says, don't judge people just because they want to have sex with a five-year-old. That's a quote from the teacher, Amber Parker. Now, this is the move that's going on in America right now. It's not just a fad. It's, it's a, it is a satanic move that tells us 
that it m- makes no difference if an adult isn't attracted to a child. I want to back up just a little bit. This is what takes place when marriage is destroyed by the Homosexual Marriage Act that took place in Obama's period, when homosexuals began to marry under the auspices of the law, when marriage licenses were given to homosexual partners, then marriage itself is destroyed. Marriage itself is eroded, and the, and the very institution itself is eroded. But that's only a tip of the iceberg. This is the kind of thing that takes place when that kind of agenda takes over America. Anybody who studied the homosexual network can find in the network itself many things regarding pedophilia. And not against it either. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. Now it's taught in the schools or now it's being taught by a teacher here in El Paso. Apparently so. So let's... Maps, that is, we're not going to call them pedophiles minor attracted persons. Now, the same thing, by the way, let me say this as well, the same thing regarding homosexuals. I was told, uh, and you can read this by in homosexual literature, don't call us homosexuals, call us gays. And the reason is because they say it's, it is an, uh, an offense to us, and we're, we're actually challenging you because homosexuality doesn't sound as good as gay. Same thing going on here. We're going to call them maps, minor attracted persons, because don't judge people if they want to have sex with a five-year-old. Now, that's what's happened in the El Paso classroom. So then came the suspension. The El Paso's Independent School District Board of Trustees unanimously voted to fire Parker following her remarks. Thankfully, they did. The quote is, on the evening of August 29th, 2022, the El Paso Independent School District was made aware of the classroom situation and promptly initiated investigation. The school district chief communications officer, Lisa Rodriguez, told Fox News Digital, after a thorough investigation was conducted on September 6, 2022, during a school board meeting, the Board of Trustees approved a decision to notify a Franklin High School teacher of the proposed termination. The process will continue in accordance with the Texas Education Code. Any allegation of potential misconduct is investigated thoroughly and the safety of our students is a top priority. This is a personal matter. No further information will be shared at this time. Now, this was two days ago, and when this this show goes to air, this will be four days old. Some students, however, in the classroom said, well, her words were taken out of context. She was expressing how ridiculous and how we society might not be able to call people pedophiles. That's what one of the students said. And so they said, we'll probably have to start calling them maps. In other words, she was on the side of, of those who are, don't want to call them maps. And she's saying, this is how terrible society's becoming. And the class agreed. This was according to one student by the name of a, a junior at the Franklin High School by the name of Ryan Ruvacaba. Daniel Call, a vice president of the El Paso Independent School District Board, noted that while the lesson plans were approved by the administrators, Parker appeared to stray from it in this particular class. Call had previously offered Parker the benefit of the doubt, saying the video had appeared to omit some important context, and it seemed Parker was only pretending to advocate the position, just as the student said. But here's what Call said. This is Daniel Call, the VP of El Paso 
school district. Update on my last post. After hearing some of the students that were in the class, including my own nephew, I now believe that the teacher that appeared to be promoting and normalizing pedophilia was pretending to advocate a position she didn't actually believe in order to challenge the students in preparation for them reading the play, The Crucible, called Rope. The video that many of us saw was missing this important context. I regret the negative attention that this situation has brought on this teacher and wish her well. I'm told she's a great educator. But he ultimately voted in favor of firing her, saying any reasonable person that heard what the seven trustees heard would have voted to terminate Amber Parker. Parker's husband, Jason, said Parker's comments were made to challenge students. Mr. Daniel Call, I happen to be the husband of the teacher in question, Parker wrote on Facebook. I can tell you that we were shaken to the core about these accusations. The whole bottom line is this. Homosexuality, pedophilia has infiltrated down not only in the high schools, but into the grade schools of America. This is not the only occasion of this. And you can see this in California schools. You can see it in East Coast schools. You can see it in Texas schools, apparently. That's what's taking place here in El Paso. But I want to reemphasize something, and that is this is part of the homosexual network. The homosexual network involves this type of thing, that is, calling them MAPs, that is, minor attracted persons, that is, normalizing pedophilia. That has been a part of the program for many, many years. I remember, for example, in the 1990s, I wrote a paper on this entire issue, talked about the biblical perspective of it, and put out a paper and had many materials that came from homosexual organizations and tried to lay it out carefully. In that material, I found, that is the material that came to the house, in that material, I found exactly the same thing. That is, their goal in the homosexual network was to normalize even pedophilia. This is what's happening in America. That's what happens when we open the door for homosexual marriage. Welcome back. A very special guest is Ira Melman. Ira Melman is immediate director for the Federation of Americans for Immigration Reform. One of the best websites that you'll find is FAIRUS.org about the border, which, of course, is completely out of control. And Ira Melman is a man who works for that organization. Ira, thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You know what? I, I guess there are so many stories that come out of the border that are so shocking and alarming. I noticed, however, that one of the articles that you wrote uh, involved the fentanyl that's coming across the border. So maybe you can brief us on that just a little bit about uh, some of the material you put into the article. Sure. Uh, you know, the headlines are generally captured by the migrants coming across. But the open border is not just an invitation to migrants. It is an invitation to the criminal cartels that smuggle drugs into this country in huge amounts. Uh, fentanyl is a public health crisis. The CDC has declared it to be a public health crisis. Uh, the vast majority of the fentanyl that's killing Americans is coming across that border. Uh, it's the same criminal cartels that are smuggling illegal aliens across the border. And in many cases, the cartels are using the migrants as a diversion. They send across migrants. Uh, the Border Patrol is forced to go out there uh, and encounter them or apprehend them uh, and then process them. And while that all is 
all happening. Uh, they're bringing in drugs across the border, uh, which are killing uh, 100,000 Americans a year right now. I noticed that you pointed out uh, that it is connected with China and the Chinese Communist Party. I don't, maybe uh, you can tell the audience about how that works. Yeah, the chemicals, the core components uh, of the fentanyl come from China. Uh, they are shipping it from various places in China across the Pacific to Mexico. Uh, it is then taken by the Mexican drug cartels and manufactured into the fentanyl pills, uh, which are then sent across the border and distributed around the United States, which is, you know, the what is really causing uh, the opioid crisis that is killing so many people here in this country. So, we, you know, we are enabling some of our adversaries uh, to in, inflict harm on us. The Chinese cert- Communist Party certainly is not an ally of the United States. Uh, the drug cartels certainly aren't. We're enriching them by the policies of this administration that make it so easy for them to get the, these drugs across the border. I noticed also that you pointed out regarding New York Mayor Eric Adams, because it doesn't end with the Biden administration, the malfeasance there, but Mayor uh, Eric Adams of New York City declared a virtual war on Texas Governor Greg Abbott. How does that, how is that working? Well, you know, as you know, Governor Abbott has been sending busloads of migrants to New York City, to Washington, D.C., to Chicago now. Uh, and, you know, these are self-proclaimed sanctuary jurisdictions. They say that they welcome people. Uh, Governor Abbott has certainly taken them up on those people up on their offers and is sending them. And they're discovering that the reality is a lot, you know, not as glamorous as uh, the grandstanding that they've been doing for the past few years. Uh, and so, you know, Mayor Adams in particular is faced with a city law, I believe it may even be a New York state law, that says you have to provide shelter for anybody who shows up. Uh, so, you know, they're uh, grappling with a huge homelessness problem in New York City. Uh, and then on top of that, they have these thousands of migrants who are being sent to New York. Uh, what they're doing now is even crazier. Uh, they are putting them up in midtown Manhattan hotels, sometimes at a rate of $700 a night. Uh, you know, all of this stems back to the Biden administration's policies at the border and the refusal of these sanctuary jurisdiction mayors and governors uh, to say to the president, hey, you've got to stop that. Instead, they're pointing fingers at Governor Abbott, uh, who admittedly is engaging in political theater here. But he is doing something that, you know, this is the only thing within his power to do to try to control the situation. You know, Ira, I wanted to talk about uh, President Biden and his malfeasance and, and disrespecting the law. Uh, but I, I also wanted to ask you about the things that come out in the news the last couple of three days. I saw on Fox News, for example, that they have bussed many of these or some of the migrants to Martha's Vineyard, as well as a couple of other places from and they've flown them from New, uh, from Florida, actually, uh, to other places like hotspots that uh, people like to go to. I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, that was being done. Yes, and again, I mean, this is more political theater. In that case, it was Governor uh, DeSantis in Florida who flew the uh, migrants to Martha's, Martha's Vineyard. You, you know, again, like the sanctuary mayors and governors, you have all of these elites who like to spend their summer vacations in Martha, Martha's Vineyard and tell everybody else, uh, how they have to cope with the migrants who are coming across. Well, you know, now, you know, this very chic uh, vacation spot, that they're turning up there as well. So, uh, you know, th- this may be the only way for the 
the coastal elites to start to recognize the problems that are being inflicted on places like Texas and Arizona. Uh, you know, they're not living down there at the border in South Texas. Uh, but when it starts to affect them in Martha's Vineyard or the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, that's when you start. Uh, they start to take notice. I noticed uh, the other day that Carrie Lake was interviewed by uh, Tucker Carlson, and she has a little bit different view. She says quit ship, she's not really in favor of shipping them up there to those places because that brings them into the interior. But she's for getting them out of the country when she becomes gov- or out of the state of Arizona. She's actually a candidate for the governorship of Arizona, as you know. So she wants to get them out of the state. So she says uh, if they're back in the interior, it's going to be more difficult to get them out. Well, yes, it is going to be more difficult to get them out. But, uh, you know, the only jurors, the only people who have the authority to remove people from the United States is the federal government. Uh, that is controlled by Joe Biden, and he doesn't want to remove people. Uh, the person he appointed to be Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, has put out policy memos saying we are not going to remove people uh, unless they commit heinous crimes here in this country. So, you know, their hands are tied. She, she is right. In theory, the ideal thing would be to send them out of the country. But you can't do that if you're the governor of Arizona. You can't do that if you're the, you're the governor of Texas. You can only do that if you're the president of the United States. Uh, so that they have to do what, what they can do. And, and, yes, I mean, it is going to be more difficult once they're in the interior of the country. But it is extraordinarily difficult to remove anybody once they're here in the country. In any event, there are all sorts of legal procedures you have to go through. Uh, and that is what the Biden administration has been counting on, the fact that they can create facts on the ground by just opening the border. They understand that once people are in the United States, whether they're in Del Rio, Texas or New York City, it is still very difficult to remove people once they're here. I wondered, Ira, and you can tell me where I'm wrong on this, but, you know, the federal government, in my view, has declared war uh, on America itself. The Biden administration declared war on America and, and we're being invaded, just as I think your website points out, we are being invaded. What would be wrong with the state of Texas, state of Arizona saying, you know what, the federal government refuses to do it. We're going to take our guard, National Guard there, and we're going to do it ourselves. I know that that is not the constitutional system, but we're at war. At, at, that's how my, my view of it. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, look, I mean, they're doing what they, they can. Um, it, it really is up to the federal government government to do this. Uh, You know, it just sort of raises all these constitutional questions. What happens when the federal government abrogates its responsibility to the states? Uh, Under our Constitution, the states have been assured you don't have to worry about things like that because the federal government is going to take care of that for you. Now we're in a situation where you have a president who affirmatively refuses to uphold the laws of the United States to protect our borders, to do the things that he is constitutionally obligated to do. Uh, you know, you'd have to get a constitutional scholar in to discuss what the constitutionality is and what actions uh, and tools are available to these state and local leaders. Uh, I, I, I cannot fully answer that question. Yeah, I, I just was curious about it. Well, you you brought up Biden several times, which is which where I wanted to go. His his speech the other night, the one with the red background and looking really like uh, some kind of satanic person. Uh, he points out about the people don't respect the rule of law, and he was of course referring to people who doubted the election results would put him into office. But he himself is violating every single day the the border laws that are created for our nation. 
He is. And, you know, that that raises, again, questions beyond the scope of immigration. Uh, if a president can come to office and say, I don't like the immigration laws and I'm simply going to nullify them, essentially, by refusing to enforce them. Well, another president can come into office and say, I don't like other laws that are on the books and I refuse to enforce those. And what you wind up with in that situation is dictatorship in four year increments uh, until you reach a point where, you know, we we may have a president said, I'm you know, I don't care. I'm not leaving office. But in any event, uh, dictatorship in four year increments is not what our founding fathers had in mind when they wrote the Constitution. So even if you agree with the objectives of the Biden administration, you should be very, very concerned about the, the way they're going about this, because once you go down the road of saying a president can simply essentially change or nullify laws by refusing to enforce them, uh, we're in for you know some very, very difficult times. Well, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're talking with Ira Melman. Uh, he is a member of an uh, organization, FAIRUS.org, about the border, and we'll be right back with Ira. All right, we're back with Ira Melman. And Ira, uh, tell us about how to join the fight for the right and, and help the organization, FAIRUS.org, regarding the border. Well, you know, you just, that's it. You just gave the website, which is fairus.org. And as you point out, it, it is an organization that, that seeks to represent the interests of the American public in the immigration debate. Uh, after all, it is our immigration policy. It's a public policy. It should serve identifiable national and public interests. Clearly, it's not doing that right now. So, you know, while all the other interest groups, including people who are here illegally, have advocates, we try to be the advocate for the American public in the immigration debate. And it's, uh, as you pointed out, fairus.org, F-A-I-R-U-S.org. That's Federation for American Immigration Reform. It's a great organization. I think people need to support it, help you out on it, because I followed you for years. You've had the statistics on it, and it's uh, it's shocking. So one of the shocking statistics that I was reading just today is the analysis by FAIR. 4.9 million illegal aliens have crossed our border since Biden took office. That, that's correct. Uh, and just to put that in perspective, uh, that is just about the population of the country of Ireland uh, that has come across our border illegally since President Biden took office. Now, uh, not everybody has stayed. Uh, and, you know, those may not be 4.9 million unique individuals. It's 4.9 uh, million illegal border crossings in the past 18 months. Uh, what we estimate is that the Biden administration has either failed to apprehend or has released about 2.3 million of those people into the United States. So th these are people who are here in this country uh, illegally uh, because this administration has allowed this to take place. Ira, just uh, maybe help us out a little bit. Tell us about what what are the repercussions? I mean, what long down the road here, these people stay, and this is what's happening. The, the population of Ireland is now here in the, in the United States. What is going to be the results of that? The, the results are that we are going to encounter all kinds of additional costs to American taxpayers. Uh, we estimate that just the additional illegal aliens who have come into the United States in the past 18 months under President Biden is going to cost the American taxpayers an additional $20 billion a year. 
Uh, that's on top of about $140 billion that we're already paying for uh, to provide services and benefits to the illegal aliens and their uh, American-born children uh, who have been here long term. So, you know, th- this just adds to the cost at a time when the federal budget budget is out of control, when state local governments are scraping around for uh, additional cash, cash to meet basic needs. Uh, we're being burdened with still higher amounts of costs based because of this administration's immigration policies. And I've wondered about the flouting, the open flouting of the law by the Biden administration and by the people who've come across. Surely this this erodes the respect for law and order in our nation, period. It, it does. Uh, and we've seen that, that, you know, what began with immigration, with, you know, sanctuary cities saying we don't care what the law says, we're not going to cooperate, uh, abolish ICE, those sorts of things have now moved into the realm of, you know, you have cities and states saying we refuse to prosecute people uh, for committing crimes. So we are seeing here the uh, devolution of a nation of laws, you know, that we like to talk about the fact that we're a nation of laws. Well, you know, it started at the border. It is now infecting the rest of the country where laws don't matter. Uh, Policies, whoever happens to be in office at a particular time, uh, those become the laws. And that is not the hallmark of a constitutional republic. It is the hallmark uh, of a dictatorship. And, you know, we ought to be very, very concerned. I right, listen. I know you need to go, and you've got another meeting coming up very shortly. So uh, we'll uh, we'll let you go today. I'd like to have you back sometime. We'll talk more about it because there are a lot more particulars to the issue. Uh, but thank you for being here today, Ira. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Okay, that's Ira Melman, Federation of for American Immigration Reform. Thank you very much.